attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Hello and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. Today's guest on the podcast, David Baum. David Baum is the son of Henry and Molly Baum, and Molly Baum was Pearl Schwartz's best friend. So David grew up at camp. Uh, you're going to hear all about that. David is a contemporary with uh, Mickey Schwartz. So a lot of fun stories um, from a guy who, who literally spent his childhood at camp. And uh, I think you'll dig him. He was really cool. Uh, you're going to love that. Before we get to that, of course, as you know, this is OJ90 week. Lots of podcasts coming this week. New stuff, classic stuff. Uh, get out there and go to OJ90.com. If you haven't gotten your tickets for the big event, that's the place to go and get all the information. Book your tickets, book a hotel, all that fun stuff. We had a fantastic open gym event today over at uh, North Shore Sports and Wellness. Uh, I know I I butchered the name yesterday, so I want to make sure I say it right. But the former joy of the game, we voted the Collegiate Week teams in. Uh, We had a bunch of kids turn up, a bunch of staff guys show up. It was really a good time. So that was awesome. Uh, Another thing I need to tell you guys about as you know, the Camp Ojibwa History Project has been uh, has found a lot of funding from its commemorative brick program, and I want to let you know it's going to be going away. Uh, we're going to be closing up shop on the sales of that in a few weeks, and uh, coinciding with our hundredth episode. And when they close, that's it. We're not going to offer bricks ever again. We're not going to offer them next year. They're not going to come back around. This is the last chance. So just so you know, uh, I'll be hitting that a little harder in the upcoming podcast. But uh, we're going to be closing down the brick sales in just a few weeks. It really will be your last chance ever to get a brick right there under the Collegiate Week bench at Camp Ojibwa. Okay, enough of that. Here we go. David Baum on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. Valley across New York State to Chicago, then the plains. All so easy and dreamlike, crashing the salt flat daybreak. I hear I'll take you home again, Kathleen. The satin fog winds out there to blow across the rooftops of eerie old hangover, San Francisco. Now I'm transcontinental. Uh, I'm David Baum, that's B-A-U-M, and I was at Camp Ojibwa from the year of, years of uh, age five as a camper to age 15, and then as a junior counselor, and then as a counselor, then as assistant waterfront director, and then as waterfront director for two or three years. Okay. So it would have been uh, the last year about 1957. Okay. Okay. And you were five when you started, so your first year is? Um, would have been 1939, roughly. Wow. 
Going way back, yes, I'm, I'm timeless. Definitely. Yeah, I've lost track myself, but they tell me that's when it was. But before that, Chris, you must know that because my mother was the camp secretary, that I was brought there as an infant and was at camp even before age five. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about that a little bit. I usually ask people, you know, how they find out about camp, but obviously with you, it was with your parents. So how did your parents come to be employees of Camp Ojibwe? Um, only my mother was an employee, not my father, but my mother, Molly Baum, was a, a lifetime friend of Pearl Schwartz, wife of Al Schwartz, the founder of Ojibwe. My dad, similarly on the west side of Chicago, had grown up with Al. Hmm. Then when the two of them married and my parents married, they remained close as a couple and frequently socialized together. And my mother, who had been uh, a dancer and taught, uh, didn't have any job over the summer, and so she was retained and hired as the camp secretary. As a result of which, I didn't have to pay tuition to camp, <laughs> which at that time we couldn't afford. Sure. And so I went as a, a camper uh, while she was the camp secretary. That's a pretty my, good perk. <laughs> it was a very good perk, and I went there all those years on that basis until, of course, I was salaried as a staff member. But my dad would also take his vacations because I was an only child and his whole family was at camp. He would come to camp for his vacation. Mm. And my mom lived in the uh, part of the... Um, facilities right next to the office, okay. adjacent to where Pearl and Al's uh, bedroom was. She had her bedroom. My dad would stay in that room with her, and he would be up there uh, a week or two at a time over the summer. So it was a family endeavor all those years. Wow, very nice. So as a child, child, do you remember Anything about camp from that period, like before you were camper when you were just sort of a little kid running around? Is there anything that sticks out about that? I remember that uh, we would come up to camp early every year that Al and Pearl uh, would drive Mickey, their son, and I up to camp every year. And uh, we would be at camp ahead of time to start opening up things and would also stay on after camp ended during postseason, the two weeks or so after, I think it was two weeks, mm -hmm. uh, after camp ended. And much of the time when we were there, uh, in those early years, we spent playing together and along with other kids who were there. And in particular, we spent a lot of time with the camp dog, Annabelle, oh. who was a floppy-eared spaniel <laughs> that was owned by Martin and Katie, who lived there year-round. Katie was the camp cook. Martin was the camp caretaker, and the dog lived with them all year long, including the harsh winters oh. uh, in Eagle River, which were very fierce. Yes. And uh, we always look forward to being with Annabelle, who was a great companion. Hmm. I, don't think, I don't think anyone else has mentioned Annabelle. That's well, fantastic. now you've got something new. <laughs> so you start as a camper. Uh, do you remember what cabin you were in? Cabin one. Started right off the bat. And I might say that uh, uh, a lot of the kids we started with stayed with us as cabin mates for many, many years. I can't say that anybody stayed with us 
uh, cabins one through 13, but a lot of them stayed for four, five, six years at a time. And when you say us, you mean you and Mickey both? That's right. We were always in the same cabin. Always in the same cabin. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit. So you're, talk to me a little bit about your friendship with Mickey. Mickey Schwartz, of course, Al's son. Right. We were uh, about the same age, although I think I might have been a year older or a few months older. I can't remember now. And we spent lots of time together. We weren't close uh, outside of the summer months because he lived some distance apart, although we both lived in Rogers Park in Chicago, but in different sections. Uh, and uh, went to the same high school eventually, but I was a year ahead of him. But we remained close all those years uh, because of, of the long time uh, connection at camp. And you stayed close after? After many years. Uh, I moved to California after school, and he stayed in Chicago, but we would uh, regularly visit each other when he came to California or when I was in Chicago on business. Nice. Nice. So in those early days as a camper, and again, we're talking about the 30s, going into the 40s, what does a camp day look like? Uh, it was a fully packed day. Uh, the mornings were often uh, instructional days where a particular cabin would be assigned to an activity uh, uh, to learn basketball or baseball, some sport, or other activities, wood shop. Um, and the afternoons were very often some kind of uh, competition. Um, with one league or another, as I vaguely remember. Gotcha. And in those days, were there enough kids that there were, like now we have um, four age groups that are split into four leagues. So we have watermelon, pineapple, grapefruit, peach. Uh, in those days, did you have as, as much of that, or was it more like, I know watermelon league was the big league, um, but then did they, were there enough younger kids that they also had, sort of had their own league? and you were on the same team all the time? There were leagues, or? but I don't remember that many leagues. Okay, I think okay. there may have been fewer. Gotcha. But that's a little vague in my yeah. mind. Um, I guess the root of the question being, like, if you were uh, if you were playing softball, would you be on the same softball team every time you played, or would it sort of mix and match as the season went on? I think mostly on the same team. Gotcha. Hmm. And so, uh, and then there were plaques, I guess, already by that time. So if you won, you got your name on a plaque at the end of the summer? Oh, there were a lot of different uh, leagues and, and competitions. And uh, names on a plaque was a big thing for a kid to have. And at the end of uh, the summer, there were these plaques that were given out with all of the medals and awards for uh, different things that you've done, not necessarily winning anything, but just participating. I see. Uh, speaking of that, there are several things uh, that were there in your time that we don't have anymore. Um, I'm sure of that. Horseback riding, riflery. Yes. Um, maybe some sort of, uh, and you maybe you can fill this in for me a little bit. Was there something like military drills? Something along no, those lines? No, nothing like that, no. But some of those activities were very important for kids who didn't uh, thrive on competition. And, uh, for example, there were kids who spent their summers really devoted to horses. Uh, and there was a wonderful stables not too far from the main campus 
It was past the wood shop, past the rifle range, past the basketball and tennis courts, down a path to an entirely different open area where there was a sizable stables, oh, I would say maybe seven or eight horses mm. that, that were kept by a um, full-time uh, guy. And kids love to be at the stables, particularly of a certain age, sure. uh, and, and it became uh, their devotion over the summer. And it was, it was great for them. Mm. Now, early on, what were There the was also an archery range. I don't know whether they, they still have that or not. Uh, they do. It's Now, in those days, the archery range was sort of next to the rifle range, just past the wood shop, I think. Does that sound right? No. It was further away oh, okay. in, in that time. But toward out toward the horse, like Exactly, the to out towards the stables. Uh, these days... And the to get to the stables, by the way, you went down a terrific little path that was all uh, tree-lined and tree-covered. And then suddenly you'd emerge into an open space where there was this, this uh, lovely stables uh, setup. These days, the archery range is uh, next to the camp campfire, the main campfire site, out toward the water there. Oh, very different. Yeah. Very different. Um, so at that age and growing up as a young camper, what were the sports that you gravitated to? Uh, I was always interested in uh, track and in swimming. Um, that happened to be a sport my father was very uh, proficient in, but I, I loved all of them. Uh, but every Saturday we had a track meet, and every Sunday we had a swim meet, mm. and uh, I really enjoyed those. And later, that proved to be a proving ground for my future in sports uh, because I participated in uh, high school, college, and thereafter in both sports. Oh, okay. I was a competitive athlete, a varsity athlete, at the University of Wisconsin in swimming and in track. Wow, very nice. And then it all started at Camp Ojibwe. It did, <laughs> it really did, yeah. Uh, now, I, in those days, did you do the uh, the island swim? Did you swim around the islands? Was that oh, part yes. of it? There was a, uh, several island swims in those years. There was a first island, Second island, and at one point, a third island swim, which was for a more advanced swimmer. And uh, that was something everybody uh, strove to accomplish because it was, it was quite, a, quite a thing. The first island, not so much, but the other islands were good, good swims. Right. Now, we don't do any of those anymore. Uh, these days, there's just too much boat traffic. That's right. There wasn't a lot of boat traffic then. It was much quieter. The second island was occupied by a family over the years, and they had a boat. Other than that, there was only one or two other boats on the whole of Catfish Lake. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it was very quiet yeah. and very beautiful. Yeah, that's very hard to believe for, for today's campers, especially, I mean, you know, at 4th of July, you might see 100 boats in a day and jet skis and all kinds of stuff. It was very different then and very uh, peaceful. Now, in terms of the waterfront, uh, Obviously, there was swimming. What other opportunities did you have at the waterfront? What other things could you do down there? Oh, there was a whole abundance of different things. Uh, the boats were a big attraction. There was a sailboat, a cat boat, that was anchored all far off the raft. Uh, there were a series of rowboats, maybe 10 or 12, uh, a number of canoes, two large war canoes, 
I will tell you we still have them. We still have them. They're yeah, beautiful. That, that's They're, great. That was great fun. Yeah. And the canoeing was was uh, uh, very popular because kids really had to learn how to uh, operate in the canoe, how to get in and out because of their tippiness, and uh, how to paddle, uh, how to ride a, a swamp canoe, and the like. And so there were boating classes, canoeing classes, and of course swimming classes. Yeah. Now, was there water skiing yet? Is it too? Yes, water skiing had come in then. There was not only water skiing, but before water skiing, there was water boarding, not like the water boarding we we think about <laughs> uh, in, in today's popular uh, vernacular. But it was a, uh, a surfboard that was pulled uh, by a boat. And it was e a lot easier than water skiing. Okay. Water skiing was easy enough. You just lay back and the boat pulled you up. Although it took a while for kids to get the hang of it. When In later years, when I was the waterfront director, I taught that. And a, a lot of kids, almost every kid of a certain age learned to water ski. And one of the goals during the summer was that every kid would be a swimmer. And a lot of the younger kids, when they first came to camp, did not swim. Mm. And my goal as waterfront director in later years was to, I'm jumping ahead of myself, because sure. you're taking it chronologically, but eventually I became a, the waterfront director and lived in a little cabin right down by the water, uh, right behind the shower house next to the piers. And we had a goal of every kid would learn to swim. And every day as the, as the number of non-swimmers narrowed, I would announce during a lunch uh, that the magic number, what is the magic number, I would yell. And the kids would all yell, 14. <laughs> that was the number of kids who had not yet passed their swimming test. Wow. And then a few days later, I'd say, what is the magic number? They all were up on the fact that it was now down to 10. And so by the end of the summer, there was, there was a great hullabaloo about eliminating all non-swimmers. And that was a great thing. And <laughs> kids, kids loved it. Yeah. The, the waterfront goes in and out of fashion over the years and different, you know, different times kids really love it, different times it's it's a chore. Um, but I think that's something we've lost is sort of just the real basics of like, don't forget that a kid doesn't necessarily come here and know how to swim. Even in today's world where they've probably been at a resort hotel <laughs> and been in swimming pools in and out all their life, they still don't necessarily come here and know how to swim. Yeah. And, and so getting back to those basics. Very important. important. Uh, and, and kids should learn early. Because if they don't, then there's a lot of hesitancy in ever learning. And uh, during postseason, when I was waterfront director, we used to have a lot of guests, and some of the parents could not swim. Oh wow! And I would be <laughs> entrusted with teaching them, and it was very difficult. I'm sure, yeah. Because they had all kinds of fears and not phobias, but hesitancy about putting their head in the water, and it was very frightening to an older person. So to me, knowing how to swim very young was terribly important. There were, there were clinics at the time that said kids should know how to swim by the time they can walk. Oh, wow. That was the, the prevalent thinking, and it was very true. Mm -hmm. They could do it that young. Of course, they were, that was younger than they were when they came to camp. Sure. But still, at age five, they were perfectly capable of learning, and learning they did, and it was a, uh, a great thrill during the summer when they could swim. Mm -hmm. Uh, one thing that goes on for many, many years, and, and I'm assuming that it had already started by then, did you have dipper shower in the morning? 
Oh, always. And that was <laughs> that was one of the great uh, events at camp, because the first thing in the morning when Reveille would sound and everybody would pile out of the cabins in towels <laughs> and march down to the waterfront, Al Schwartz would then conduct an exercise regime. He had his own uh, series of exercises, which were very basic, but he would shout them out and everybody would do the exercises. And then when that was over for maybe five or 10 minutes, he would holler, dip or shower. And everybody had to either go in the water, which was cool at that time of day, <laughs> certainly, or into the showers. And after a while, it, it was probably more dip than shower. Mm. People loved to go in the water. Uh, the shower was uh, more comfortable, but the dip was more invigorating. <laughs> Excellent. We... But that cry of Al's, dip or shower, was legendary at camp. <laughs> We tried to uh, bring it back this year after uh, many years hiatus. Um, so I think two or three times this summer we did it, and uh, it was a much different beast. You know, they're basically yeah. coming out in full clothes. Oh, is that right? <laughs> well, it's a this, little, little different time. This was uh, was more uh, perhaps primitive, but it was a lot of fun. Kids could, would come out only in a towel at all times of the year and under all conditions. And then you drop after exercise was over. You drop your towel and run into the water, and then come out and pick up your towel on the sand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so going on through the day, um, let's talk about meals. How was the food? Well, the food was always basic but great, and um, it was varied. And of course, the cook Katie Evans was idolized at camp. Everybody always thought she was she walked on water, and she managed a big kitchen that was served by the uh, junior counselors in those days. I don't know whether that still continued, mm -hmm. and that was a lot of fun when I was a, a JC. Uh, I really enjoyed serving the kids because we we have uh, fun doing it, and uh, the food was very very desirable. Everybody was always hungry, and it was good. We talked earlier about uh, meatloaf and liver and onions. What kind of things do you remember? I remember fried chicken mm. was particularly good. Uh, and there were certain meals on certain days, and I can't remember what those days were or what the meals were, but that was something a lot of kids looked forward to. Today was blah, 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 and we'd eat blah, 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 and that was, that was great, great fun. Yeah. Uh, the mess hall seems to be one of those things that ties every era together. You know, that, that camps always had great food and, right. uh, and all you could eat of it, mostly. <laughs> Constantly, yeah. Although I think kids didn't, didn't uh, gorge and the food generally was healthy. Of course, it wasn't up to today's uh, uh, nutritional standards, perhaps. Sure. But that was a different era. It's a different era, for sure. So you go through as a camper, uh, eventually you get to cabin 13. And, yes. And you're a, a muckety-muck camper, as it were. Um, first I don't of know all, about muckety-muck. You were older. <laughs> and I think that the, the, uh, the uh, prestige to a kid in being in 13, among other campers, was very big. Oh, he's in cabin 13. So it was a, a, a mark of attainment to some degree. And speaking of marks of attainment, you mentioned uh, earlier before we started talking about the Braves. 
So you were a Brave, and you were also Chief of the Braves. I, I was. And I wish I could tell you the password, but I've forgotten it. <laughs> <laughs> if there was a password. Yeah, it was a, a great thing to be nominated as a Brave. It was done in uh, a ritual fashion where the uh, Indians in full garb would, would move along the cabins and, and uh, select someone to be a member of the Braves. And then eventually among the, the Braves would select uh, the officers and I was a chief, and uh, Mickey Schwartz followed me as a chief. I remember that. Very nice. And it was always uh, uh, an honor to be not only in the association, uh, but uh, to be an officer. What uh, what powers did one wield as a officer of the Braves at that time? Oh, not really any any power. You just participated in, in the ceremony, which was which was uh, an occasional powwow of Indians where they put on a, a show for the kids at night, um, sometimes uh, with a lot of uh, fires and uh, uh, rituals. Uh, they would uh, go through a ritual of smoking the peace pipe and talking about uh, uh, the qualities of a, of a good person mm. and uh, what it took to be a brave. and. It was something the kids kids enjoyed. And occasionally it was an entertaining event. Sure. I remember when I was chief, we arranged to have uh, someone shoot a flaming arrow up into the sky, and then there was a, uh, at a campfire site, and then there was a, a line, uh, a cable line coming down from a tree into the, into the campfire, and uh, which was unlit, and a flame came down the fire, and the kids thought it was amazing that the arrow <laughs> arrow went up and then hit the, the campfire. They didn't. They missed the point that it came in on an angle. But uh, I remember that was a highlight of yeah. my, my year as uh, chief of the Braves. That's some big special effects. For yeah. <laughs> well, we needed something like that, but it was fun. Sometimes the campfire would be on the beach at the, in the sand, and sometimes it would be at the campfire site along the lake, which were beautiful spots. The, I must say the view... Uh, from camp to the lake was always very grand, and I remember it to this day. I think I do have some pictures at home of uh, the view from camp to the lake. Mm. It is it is glorious, and even if there's a hundred boats out there, it really is one of a kind. The Braves. Now these days, uh, the last night of camp, we do Warrior Night. Is that something that you guys did? Does that ring a bell? It does not ring a bell. I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, we're talking about a lot of years, and if I forget a detail or two, I must be forgiven. I think that's fair. Um, it sort of serves as a sort of a warrior powwow. So that's where new warriors are chosen and or, or become official and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, so also in 13, um, something that might be coming into play by that time is Collegiate Week. Oh, yes, we had Collegiate Week, one of the highlights Certainly. of the summer. That was very, uh, very big. And the years later, when you'd meet someone from camp, as in, in our paths crossed all the time in whatever city you lived in, mostly from Chicago, but from all over the place, kids would say, oh, I remember you, you won collegiate week. Your team won collegiate week. You were Michigan or whatever it was. Each team had a, a designated uh, Big Ten school of course. In, in that era. And... Uh, there was competition 
in every aspect of the day, starting with uh, uh, who lined up best before <laughs> uh, mess, before eating, to, uh, of course, competition during the day, to uh, performances uh, and, and prizes, and, uh, of course, the, the swimming and track meets. Uh, all the, every member of the team would garner uh, points for the team. And the thing that was interesting, you could have a little kid, a younger kid, on your team, and if they did something well and scored well in whatever the category was, let's say they uh, uh, sang well and they won a prize or they, they did well for that, that inured to the benefit of the team and so you, they would be selected because of their singing ability mm. as well as their uh, running ability in a track meet. Sure. And because they got points as well. So it was very much a, uh, a fine attitude and a team attitude. And I think it taught kids a lot. Now, when you say they were selected, did the coaches select the teams all the way, select everyone at camp, basically? There was a counselor in charge of each team or maybe two, I can't remember, who would then pick the team. Hmm. And so, as I mentioned, sometimes a younger kid who had a particular skill would be uh, picked early in the team rather than some older kid who uh, was okay but didn't bring in the points that the younger kid brought in. That sure. was very interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, what, let me ask, what did that look like? Like, where did that take place? Did, it, did they pick in front of everyone, like a, in a big, uh, like a rec hall kind of a uh, thing? Or? I think so, but I'm not sure. That's yeah. a little, that detail. Now you're, 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 <laughs> you're plumbing the inner recesses of my memory bank, and uh, that, uh, that page is missing. Yeah, that's one of those things that has changed a lot over the years in different ways. And uh, these days it's all, it all uh, happens behind closed doors, and... And it sort of became so that certain kids didn't feel like they got picked last. Absolutely. Like I think so. that's a good thing. Yeah. I think that's wise. Probably far better than it used to be. Now, did you did you win Collegiate Week? I never did, no. Mm -hmm. no. Um, but it didn't make any difference, you know. Like the man says, it's not whether you win or lose. And, and playing the game was really uh, a great benefit to everybody. Everybody got very into it. It was very exciting. Mm. The Collegiate Week was, I have to say, one of the highlights of the whole summer. Nice. nice. I think because of the team effort that the younger kids looked up to and were led by older kids, older boys, and they all pulled together as a team. Yeah, and it, and it creates relationships between those age groups that might not have naturally happened with the oldest to the youngest. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So now you're done with cabin 13, you move into being a, ju a junior counselor. Yes. Um, what's the big difference? Well, you, you had responsibilities and you now were a caretaker of uh, kids. Mm -hmm. uh, you were now a teacher rather than a pupil. Uh, you, you also got to know kids of, of different ages. For example, my first year as a JC was in cabin one the five and six-year-olds. So here I was, a 15 or six-year-old, 16-year-old, and I was ahead of myself in school, so at 16 I was entering college. So here I was a college kid 
in charge of five-year-olds. <laughs> and it was a great learning experience for the junior counselor. Certainly. And, of course, the kids looked up to their mentor and their, their uh, counselor. At that time, there was one counselor and one junior counselor to each cabin. Hmm. It may have changed now. It's a little, a little bigger now. Yeah. I'm just more, you know, just room for more, I guess. But do you remember who your counselor was when you were a junior counselor? I don't, no. Yeah. Um, so junior, oh, and also you have uh, waiting duty. You, uh, you wait the tables. That's right. You were a waiter, as I mentioned. And that was fun. I really enjoyed waiting. Uh, I have friends who waited tables in college. They said it was a miserable experience. I said, not me. I always tell them, <laughs> I loved waiting on kids, maybe because they're waiting on adults who are more demanding. Mm. But the kids were, were terrific. Yeah. So then you move into being a full counselor. And uh, do you remember how many years you did that? I think just one year. And that year, I believe, I also served as uh, assistant waterfront director. Mm. Then after that, one year, became the waterfront director, which was good, pretty good for me because I was very young to be the waterfront director. Yeah. A lot of them had been much older. It is, it is certainly a spot of prestige in the uh, annals of Camp Ojibwe. That's true. Um, not only do you get the freedom of having to, getting to live in the waterfront shack as opposed to being in a cabin, um, which frees up your maybe your evenings, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, uh, you're helping. You're really running a major piece of camp, and it's your responsibility to keep people interested, as you said, to make sure kids are learning to swim, but also to get kids to come down there and, and want to be interested in rowboats or whatever it happens to be on any given day. Yeah, I don't know whether I'd call it a prestige, but it was great fun, mm-hmm. and it was uh, challenging, but very satisfying to me. Uh, to to run that show. And of course, we had all kinds of help. I had two assistants at the time who were counselors, both of them were uh, college varsity swimmers from Indianapolis, uh, both my, uh, my years as waterfront director, and they were very helpful. And the guys I've stayed friendly with all these years, one of whom is a prominent doctor now in Los Angeles, and the other is a doctor in uh, Florida. Hmm. And I've, I've met with them and seen them regularly. Uh, so it was a great crew, and we enjoyed it. And it was, uh, as I said, very uh, gratifying yeah. to, do, to do that for the summer. Now, also as an older staff man, now the waterfront director, um, you have your nights free. Now, were there, did you go into town? Did you, at that period of time, was that a thing you'd go in and corrals or whatever, whatever things you happen to do. <laughs> Maybe corrals isn't the right word, but um, go into town, go to Zimpleman's or... Occasionally, but, yeah. the, you know, at that time, uh, the town was not much. <laughs> there was occasionally maybe a movie or I remember Zimpleman's, Zimps as it was called, mm-hmm. but uh, every year we would have a uh, town hike uh, where the entire camp would hike from camp into town <laughs> and uh, see a movie, as I remember. Mm. And uh, Al Schwartz would always say, now we're going to the great metropolis of Eagle River, <laughs> which was always, uh, w- again, was a legendary remark because it was so funny because it was this little, you know, one-street town. Mm. I'm sure it's a lot bigger now. I don't, I don't 
know if a lot is the right word. But, you yeah, know. it was strictly a little resort town. Yeah. But uh, other than the, the camps surrounding it, I don't think they got much business. Mm. So, yes, we'd go into town. Uh, carousing was definitely not the word. <laughs> uh, when there was some fun to be had, we'd go to some of the resorts. Oh, I see. And, and there, uh, if you, you had the wherewithal to get there, it was, was a lot, of, uh, lot more action. Gotcha. If you get my drift. I do, I do. Uh, one thing uh, we haven't touched on, I came to camp as the theater guy. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, learned very quickly it was a sports camp. But one thing that can't be denied is that even though it's always been a sports camp, that the stage has always been a big piece of Ojibwa. There's always been a big contingent of guys who that was where they really blossomed. Did you have any experiences on the stage or with the stage? I did in a uh, in a real way. I was always in the annual show they had at that time was a minstrel show, mm-hmm. uh, which has been discontinued. But that was a fixture uh, during the camp season, and and there was a lot of rehearsal we put into that, and it was quite a well attended thing. And then there was an inner cabin sing that we had every year, for each cabin. Uh, would be uh, rehearsed in a song or songs. It was one or two, thank you. Uh, and uh, they would perform on the stage in the rec hall. Uh, for most kids, it was the only time they'd ever been on stage. And uh, I enjoyed that very much. Uh, and first year I was a uh, counselor, as a junior counselor, we put on a performance with five-year-olds who sang a song in French. <laughs> uh, it was uh, Dites Moi from, uh, not South Pacific, yes, South Pacific, that's right. And uh, then they sang it in English, and they did it beautifully and in harmony, and <laughs> wow. that won the prize walking away. <laughs> And they had the best time. I'm sure. And, and uh, I remember seeing some of those kids in later summers who always talked about that experience. So, yeah, there, there were a lot of things that kids enjoyed other than competitive sports. Mm-hmm. Did they do um, the stunt night, stunt and song, with uh, Collegiate Week? Did they do performances with that as yes, well? Yes, that was, that was part of Collegiate Week, and that, too, was a big factor. So I mentioned earlier that some kids with particular talents were very sought after to be on certain teams because they were their talents were well known and uh, the coaches who picked them figured they could bring in points in that way for their team and they did so that was great i remember in particular there was one kid who was uh, a whiz at uh, running and jumping and in track events and so he was picked early on everybody said Wow, I think he was uh, maybe 10 years old, mm. picked ahead of all the older kids who would generally be the, the baseball players and the basketball sure, players and the, the more uh, advanced sports because he could bring in so many points in a track meet on Saturday that he would help the team win, and I think they did win. Wow. And he was like their first or second pick wow. in, the whole, <laughs> in the team. And that was uh, a, a lesson to other kids that regardless of your age, you can do well yeah. Uh, with particular talent. Definitely. Um, 
Early, we touched on uh, talking about your folks earlier. Um, what we didn't talk about much was Alan Pearl. Tell me a little bit about Alan Pearl. Well, Alan was, was Ojibwe. He was the founder. Uh, he, he bought the property when there was nothing there. He had it built, and he uh, sustained it all during the, the years he was uh, owner of the camp. And his uh, wife, Pearl, was a very talented woman. She had been a phys ed teacher and was very gifted as a teacher generally. And the two of them just uh, developed the camp and ran it like a well-oiled machine. And Al was a great character uh, that the kids loved because he was very dynamic. He was charismatic. And he uh, was really the life of the party at camp. With every meal, he would make announcements, always with a lot of humor and a lot of uh, fun. Uh, and uh, he ran the show over the years. And that, that uh, uh, power and that uh, magnetism never diminished. In particular, a particular delight was when a lot of parents would come up and visit. There was always a parent's table in the mess hall Mm. when fathers would, would come up to visit and stay in what was then called the Dad's Lodge. I'm sure it's something different today. Certainly. Uh, and he would introduce them, and he gave these very flamboyant, totally non-factual introductions of each person. <laughs> uh, this man is a great fireman. He was a great uh, mayor of uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, <laughs> and he would make up all kinds of wild stories. He he was building a rocket ship to the moon when it crashed. <laughs> Otherwise, he would have been on the moon right now, et cetera. And the kids howled and loved it. And that was a good example of his uh, grandiosity mm. and his uh, imagination. Mm. Now, being so, cl uh, being so close with the family, because of your folks, of course, being close with those guys, uh, I assume that you also you can have a year-round relationship with Alan Pearl. Yes, I saw that. I saw him all the time. My folks... Did, did as well, and my mother, who was an avid tennis player, as were Alan Pearl, played tennis during the rest period after lunch when the kids were in their cabins almost every day. They <laughs> played gonna, a, a foursome. I was going to ask if you got to be the fourth in that uh, Occasionally, although they were all very good uh, with different styles, and uh, my mother, for example, had a chop shot the rest of them would blast away, and she'd uh, play defensively. When my father came up, he was the fourth. Mm. Uh, but always there was a uh, very good tennis player who was one of the counselors who taught tennis or other uh, counselors who were, were good staff members who were good tennis players who would uh, play. And occasionally one of the campers who was a, an outstanding tennis player would play them, with them too. But that was either a daily or almost daily event, wow. the foursome of tennis after lunch. That's very cool. And, of course, the weather was always fabulous. Sure. So you could play almost every day. It never rains at Camp Ojibwe. I don't know if you've heard. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't heard that saying, but as I think back, I don't remember much rain. Yeah. Yeah, we, we live by those words, even if it's actually raining on your head at the time. We, we sort of live by those words. Um, I was thinking about uh, someone who would have been there while you were there, Alan Sherman. Uh, now, Alan Sherman sort of famously wrote, you know, Hello, Mutta, Hello, yes. Pata. Uh, do you remember him at camp? No, he was, I think, before my time. 
Um, he had a very, it was very brief. I think he was only there for part, maybe a, two weeks of one season. That's what I heard. However, I did have a connection with him because my wife uh, worked in, for, in show business uh, when she was in L.A. and worked for a theatrical agency once or some, some branch of show business where he worked also. She got to know him and knew that he, was, he based his song on Ojibwa. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just, um, in the process of doing this, uh, Bruce Chlorphene, does that name ring? Oh, yes, I knew Bruce very well. Yeah, so I know Bruce's son, Jeremy, from, he's a postseason guy these days. Uh, what I discovered through this sort of research was that it was actually Bruce, Bruce was college friends with Alan Sherman. Well, that makes friend. sense because Bruce Chlorphene uh, had a connection with show business. He... Um, had a, a very profound stutter, and yet he performed on stage uh, doing uh, imitations of Al Jolson, who was still around and popular at that time. And oddly enough, as with often is the case with stutter, stutters, stutterers, he could sing without stuttering, hmm. and he performed. And Bruce was a very handsome uh, powerfully built guy. I think he was a weightlifter at one time and was very uh, charming and uh, a lot of fun. He also was a great horse aficionado. <laughs> he loved horses and I think he was the, the horse instructor at camp mm. and was always out at the stables. He loved riding the horses. Yeah. He was a great teacher. Hmm. Nice. But I do remember Bruce Clarkson. Um, he was always without a, a shirt and sun tanning, even when it rained. <laughs> we still got a few of those guys. <laughs> the last question I always ask everyone, um, you are now a grown-up. Um, I hope so. <laughs> uh, after all these years and sort of looking back on life, um, how do you think your time at Camp Ojibwe affected your life? Well, I think in a, in a very major way, uh, not only the camaraderie that you establish when you're there that continues over the years, but also just the sense of, of uh, working with other boys, uh, being tutored by very accomplished counselors and teachers in the various sports was big with me. Uh, one of my regrets is I left Chicago right after school and was away uh, during col the college years when I also worked summers at camp uh, and then was in law school so I didn't have time to see a lot of people I knew from camp who lived in Chicago. So a lot of those connections were lost early on uh, going away to college then being in law school and being deeply immersed in that, and then leaving for California, where I've lived ever since. Uh, although occasionally I'd go back to Chicago, I wouldn't connect with a lot of the campers I knew uh, because of time uh, constraints. But I think if I had stayed in Chicago, it would have been a very big part of my life. Uh, the connections I made were very meaningful to me. 
both with uh, staff and with campers, because I went all the way through. Mm. I think probably I'm one of the few who didn't miss a cabin all the way along. Mm. And then with my time after that as a counselor, JC and waterfront director, probably had the longest tenure of anybody uh, other than Mickey mm. or maybe a couple of others I can't remember yeah. uh, at camp. So that uh, it was a very important part of my life, a very meaningful part of my life. Uh, I also uh, connected a lot as a, as a staff member with the parents. Parents were very grateful for some of the, the help that their kids got. As a matter of fact, when I was in law school, I got job offers from parents. Oh, wow. <laughs> Come work for me when you're through with law school. So I always regret I missed out on that. <laughs> sure. Not that, you know, necessarily would have happened or necessarily would have been a good thing. But uh, it, it, I just cite that as an example of how uh, close everybody was. And it, it just demonstrates the camp feeling that pervaded everybody kids, staff, and parents. Mm. Nicely put. Um, I do want to touch on one thing we for, I forgot to ask you about, and that is postseason. Postseason, I believe, has been around basically as long as camp's been around and, and continues today very strongly. Um, these days, we have a couple of families who have more than 40 years of post each. Really? Yeah. That's um, fabulous. Yeah, so now that, that almost catches you. I mean, almost gets back to you. Um, yes. Not quite. Uh, but tell me a little bit, I, I feel like post is a little different now um, than what it was. It's the same sort of time period, and we do two sessions, once like a full week and one's kind of a half week. Um, but what did what did post camp look like? Wh who, were, who were the people who were coming? What was the day like? Well, it, it sounds like it's different now because we didn't have two seasons, I mean two sessions of postseason. Postseason was two weeks after camp ended, and it would became like a resort with all the camp facilities so that uh, some uh, kids stayed on with their parents. Some parents came after their kids were gone and stayed on. Some repeat campers, uh, older campers came. There was a regular group of former campers who came as a group every year that I was there. I think. I mentioned to you earlier the names Monty Feldman, Bob Holub, and uh, several others always came as a group and stayed for a week at a crack. Uh, most people didn't stay more than a week, but the session was, was continuous for I that see. week. Another thing that happened that was the reason why some of the staff stayed on was that there, were some, uh, there was some need for some attention to the camp afterwards. Some jobs had to be done, things put away and the like. Sure. So some of the staff were invited to remain on as, as guests of camp mm. to do all that. But the reason a lot of staff came on, frankly, was a lot of young women came up and stayed at camp in those years. <laughs> that see. was one of my main attractions. Sure. Uh, and it Especially was, after eight weeks of all Well, yeah. <laughs> well, not necessarily if you were a staff member because you could get out. But that, they would uh, put the, uh, the young ladies in one of the cabins. Mm. It was the women's cabin. And sometimes there were two cabins or three cabins loaded of, of uh, girls. Wow. So maybe not three, but I think I remember two. 
And so we, there would be joint uh, uh, boy-girl softball games and the like mm. on the campus, or volleyball games, uh, which I, I do remember. And it was great fun. Yeah. And of course, uh, the weather was still great, so there would be a lot of waterfront activities. We would swim a lot and uh, hang out, and it was, it was terrific. So that's something I missed when I left. Mm. I mean, I left for California for sand, surf, and girls. Not necessarily in that order, uh, but uh, I do miss uh, the camaraderie and the fun of postseason. It was, it was a great time. Yeah. I stayed every postseason. Of course, my parents were up there then. My mother was sure. there. But uh, even so, I'm, I'm delighted that I had the opportunity to do that. Now, there's a, uh, a stalwart event in the postseason, which I, I think goes back as far as that. It's a talent show. Now, was there a... Uh sort of a postseason talent show or no, any sort that of performing or anything? It sounds like things have progressed and gotten even better since <laughs> well. my day because that sounds great. But no, we didn't have that. These days uh, we have a lot of kids, um, especially in one of the sessions. It's, it's younger parents. So it's guys who were campers probably 15 years ago to 20 years ago. So they're having kids that aren't quite camp age yet. So you've got a lot of kids, and so the kids will put together acts and all the parents will get out their phones and videotape it. And That's great. No, no, <laughs> that was you know, not a, a thing. That was not a thing. Gotcha. There was no uh, parent participation even during, either during the, the summer season or during postseason. But that sounds like a good uh, addition. Yeah. Well, listen, come on back. We can, we, we can find you a spot. <laughs> well, I did go back. I mentioned to you earlier uh, on one occasion when I was in the, in the Midwest, not too far from Wisconsin. I was in Minnesota. Uh, in business, and uh, my my family was with me, my kids and my wife, and I uh, dragged them back to camp, and they were reluctant. My girls said, we don't want to go to a boys' camp, but they loved it because it was just a great environment. And while there, I met some of my old campers who were in my cabins and others who I knew, and it was very uh, meaningful for me to go back. And... Uh, that was the only time I'd been back, but uh, I remember it well. Very nice. Well, let me say that uh, part of the reason I wanted to interview you, you know, I've talked to a bunch of guys. I've talked to guys from all different eras, and your name has come up a ton of times. And I, I owed them money, that's why. Well, <laughs> that may very well be the case, but there is no question that uh, your presence, particularly on the waterfront, was an institution for a period of time at camp. And uh, I hope that you know that there are guys out there who really remember that and appreciate it and you know you mean a lot to them so i feel lucky to have gotten a chance to talk with you and i hope that uh they get to listen to this and take a little of you home with them so. well it's very nice of you to say and uh, hello to all of them <laughs> perfect well thank you very much for taking the time you're welcome Okay, that is it. Another one in the books. David Baum, awesome stories. Uh, what a fun adventure he had growing up and being a part of camp so long ago and for so long, uh, so formative for his childhood. He was awesome. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher at CampOjibahistory.org or swing by the website. Tons of updates have been done. The Warriors now going up to 2016. Uh, new medicine men, tons of new videos. Check it all out. Again, if you haven't gotten your tickets yet for the event, OJ90.com, swing by there, book a hotel while you can still get a good discounted rate on our rooms. 
buy your tickets now. Anyone who buys a ticket in the month of February for the main event is going to be entered into a uh, hat pick. And we're going to pull 10 names and give them two free nights at camp sometime this summer. So check that out. That's definitely a cool incentive to buy your tickets a little bit early, I think. Okay, that is it. Come back tomorrow. We'll have a little more content for you then. But I'm going to take my little break. The weather's beautiful. You know where I'm going.